So we are studying the Apostle Paul's letter to the Colossians, and we're now at chapter 3. Chapter 3, I'm going to call this chapter basically the difficult doctrine of sanctification. Um, don't let that word doctrine scare you. Um, it really is important that we understand the truth if we would grow as Christians. And um, there are really a lot of ideas that kind of float around, a lot of false ideas about how we are to find real freedom to become more like Jesus, how we are to grow as Christians. Um, you know, the questions that, that maybe get raised for you or maybe you might think about are, you know, should we just let go and let God? Do we just let God flow through us like an empty vessel? We just try and get out of the way and let him live through us. Or, on the other hand, do we just keep trying harder and harder and harder and never give up? Um, this passage here is one of the most important passages for understanding how growth takes place in a Christian, what the Bible calls sanctification. And um, I, I think it's a really important topic to talk about. Martin Luther said that bad theology is like a cruel taskmaster. Jesus, maybe even a better authority, certainly a better authority, said that you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And so we want to come to understand what is the truth that will help set us free? What do we need to, to learn about how Christians can grow? And this is not just for those of you who would say, yes, I'm a Christian, uh, because I think actually one of the barriers to people who are trying to think about whether or not they might want to follow Jesus is all of the miserable, hypocritical Christians that they know. So the doctrine of sanctification and understanding how Christians grow, it's not just something Christians need, it's something the whole world needs. Because a lot of the, the, the slavery and the bondage that comes from false ideas about how we grow is affecting the church's witness and making it um, really the kind of thing that why would anybody else want to come into the misery that they see so many Christians living in, okay? So it matters. Let's read this passage, and then we're going to um, dig into it tonight. I'm going to start reading chapter 3, verse 1. Uh, as I said, I'm reading from the New International Version tonight. The Apostle Paul says this. This is God's Word. Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways, in the life you once lived, but now you must also rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other, since you've taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, 
Clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect humility. Pray with me briefly. Lord, we do thank you that you do not leave us kind of wandering around in the dark, wondering what kind of life you've called us to live. What kind of life uh, is real freedom? Uh, Lord, you tell us so clearly in your word. We thank you for that. But Lord, as one of my professors used to say, the real challenge is not so much knowing what to do, it's finding the courage to do it. And so Lord, as we come tonight and talk about sanctification, may you help us to understand in a way that would set us free and give us courage. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, um, basically three points I'm going to make tonight. First is, first things first, the importance of not confusing justification with sanctification. Then we're going to look at this really important point that the Bible never just gives us bare commands. The Bible never gives just bare commands. And then we're going to look, particularly at verse 9, at the idea that sanctification is both definitive and progressive. I know that sounds kind of weird and abstract, but trust me, it's actually really important and really practical. So let's go back to the beginning. First things first. Do not confuse justification with sanctification. Now, let's start right at the beginning, the first four verses. Paul says this, Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. Notice the past tense things that Paul talks about here. You've been raised with Christ. You've died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. So what you need to remember is, when we're talking about living like a Christian, becoming more holy even in our lives, we're not talking about how to make God more pleased with us. We're not talking about how to make God more pleased with us. The only way for God to be pleased with you is for you to throw all of your hope on Jesus the only one who lived and died in the place of sinners, as that hymn by Horatius Bonar that we sing sometimes puts it, upon a life I did not live, upon a death I did not die, I stake my whole eternity. That's justification. Our guilt transferred to Jesus. He dies on the cross like we talked about last week. And the case against us is now not just a hung jury. It's been utterly demolished. And it no longer hangs over us because Jesus took the punishment we deserved and gives us credit for his life of perfect beauty. We sang about it in that hymn, Before the Throne, right? Justification means being seen as beautiful in God's sight because you've done everything that he asks from the heart. Some people, I, I think, have been taught that justified means just as if I'd never sinned, that's not what it means. That's only half of it. It's not enough to just be seen as somebody who's never sinned because you still have to live a life of holiness. Jesus said that you have to love him with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your strength. And it doesn't matter how many times you're forgiven for not doing that. You never are going to be able to do that yourself. 
The beauty of the Christian life, the beauty of justification, is that we get credit for the life that Jesus lived, not just the death that he died, right? So, justification is a completely settled thing. When you become a Christian, when you become a Christian, you are seen as perfectly beautiful in God's sight because he sees Jesus in your place. That's justification. Sanctification means growing more and more like Jesus. And that's the work of the Holy Spirit to continue to change us. And it's not some magic process. The Bible actually tells us quite a lot about how God changes us and what that means for how we're to live. And that's what we're going to talk about tonight, right? But here, I just want to say this thing at the beginning. Practically speaking, a lot of Christians, even Christians raised in good churches, confuse justification and sanctification all the time. All the time, practically, we feel like God's opinion of us is based on how well we're living the Christian life. It doesn't matter. We may feel like, well, you know, today I didn't have a quiet time, and so God's probably just a little disappointed with me. Or maybe it's, you know, today I looked at porn, so I know that God is really disappointed in me and doesn't love me today. We tend to always think that what God thinks about us is based on what we're doing. And that's not true. Justification is based solely on what Jesus did. It's really about an agreement that God the Father made with God the Son, where God the Father accepts the life and death of God the Son in the place of sinners. We didn't even have a seat at the negotiation table. It was done to us. And that's why Paul uses this kind of language. You have been raised. See, that's passive. That's something that happened to you. He doesn't say you've raised yourself. He doesn't say you've done so well that you've impressed God. No, it's all about what Jesus has done. Now, I put that little quote by Richard Lovelace down there. Richard Lovelace was a seminary professor. He was a professor and a big influence on a guy named Tim Keller. Maybe you've heard of Tim Keller. He's been quite uh, a popular speaker, preacher, uh, in our day, and he's a wonderful guy. I encourage you to read his books and to listen to his sermons. But, you know, it was Richard Lovelace that really helped him understand the practical importance of helping Christians understand that they're not justified by the level of their sanctification. And I'll just tell you, you have to fight against that all the time. Because we're such people pleasers, we're such workaholics, that we just project the way we live our lives before people onto God. We're always trying to get people to like us by what we do or what we don't do, and we think that God is kind of like that, but he's not. His opinion of us is based on what Jesus did. Now, as we look at these first four verses, Paul says, since you've been raised with Christ. So again, there's something that flows out of what God has done. Since then you have been raised with Christ. What does he say? Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. And I'm so glad that Paul included that last phrase because I think so many Christians just really only think about the first part of this verse. They say, they think, since you've been raised with Christ, set your heart on things above. Like, I just need to think about heaven all the time. But that's not actually what Paul says here. Paul is not talking here about escapism. Paul is talking about heart focus. 
And in the Bible, the heart is not your emotions. The heart is the center of your being. So he's talking about a sustained, intentional focus on what? On Christ seated at the right hand of God the Father. Now, what does that mean? Well, it's kind of shorthand for focus on the finished work of Jesus. The book of Hebrews chapter 1 says, After Jesus made purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God the Father. When the Bible talks about Jesus being seated at the right hand of God the Father, it's a reference to the completed work that he did, the work that makes us beautiful in God's sight. And this is what Paul is saying. He's not saying just quit thinking about earth and about your physical life. Just think about heaven up on a cloud somewhere. He's saying, no, focus on the completed work of Jesus. Then he goes on, set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. Why? He says, because you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. Now, what does that mean? Your life is now hidden with Christ in God. Well, it's a a hugely important thing. The Greek word Paul uses here for hidden is actually a word that has the connotation of hidden as a place of safety. Not just hiding, but being safe because you're hidden. There's some Psalms that talk about, hide me, O Lord, and I'll be safe from my enemies. That's the idea. Safe because you're hidden. And what are you hidden in? You're hidden in the righteous robes of Jesus. His beauty. It's one of the the, the clearest ways to try to get your heart around this idea that when Jesus looks at you, he doesn't see you, he sees Jesus because you're hidden in his robes of righteousness. That's what we're to focus on, right? Now, setting your heart on things above is not, again, how you get right with God because how you get right with God is something God does by his grace, but it's what our focus should be on as beloved children of God. We've died and our life is hidden with Christ in God. Christians are safely hidden in the robes of Christ's beauty. That is the heart of sanctification. And what Paul's saying is, before he begins to even talk about how we are to live, he says, you need to have a laser-like focus on the completed work of Christ. Because if you don't really, in your heart of hearts, believe that you're made acceptable to Christ by what he has done, then all of your Christian living is really an attempt to kind of shore up your own righteousness. It's an attempt to try to get God on your side. But the Christian life of freedom only comes from having that totally settled. And what Paul's saying is, before I begin to tell you to put sin to death and to clothe yourself with, with, with holiness, before I begin to tell you how to live, I got to make sure you really understand that you're already hidden safely in the righteousness of Jesus. You know, in RUF, sometimes we say, for every one look at your sin, you need to take 10 looks at the cross. That's what Paul's saying here. Before you even start worrying about whether you're living the Christian life, you need to be, have this laser focus on the finished work of Christ. Do you think about it? Do you study it? You know, when I was y'all's age, you know, freshman year in college, I had such a vague 
understanding. I knew in some kind of vague way that Jesus had died for my sins. I didn't know how it worked. I didn't know what it meant. I just kind of was trying to hold on to it by my own willpower. But it didn't animate me because I didn't understand it. You know, John, the Apostle John says that we should know and rely on the love God has for us. It's hard to rely on the love God has for us if we don't really even understand it or understand what it's based on. And remember, the end of chapter 2, like we talked about last week, Paul goes into great depth about what happened on the cross. The law that was opposed to you was nailed to the cross. The shame and all the things that would pour shame on you, they themselves were shamed, publicly humiliated at the cross. Paul wants you to have a deep understanding of the mechanics of salvation. He wants you to understand how it works so that you can do battle with your unbelief. And you can do battle with Satan when he comes and whispers lies. And that's why I love that hymn that we just sang, Before the Throne of God Above. Boy, if you all could memorize that hymn and be able to speak that to your fears and to your doubts, speak it to one another, it would help you a lot. Charity Lee's Bancroft, boy, you know, I have actually the book of all of her hymns. She never wrote another hymn anywhere like this one. This one is just a jewel. It's incredible. God was particularly with her, I think, when she wrote this one. This verse, one with himself. That's what Paul's saying here. You've been raised with Christ. You're in union with Christ. One with himself. I cannot die. I can't die because I've already died. If you've already died with Christ, you can't die again. My soul is purchased by his blood. My life is hid with Christ on high with Christ my Savior and my God. That's our hope. And that has to be bedrock truth for you. If you are struggling to live the Christian life, sometimes, I know it seems a little counterintuitive, but sometimes what you really need to do is preach the gospel to yourself again. I know so often, you know, sometimes I'll get calls from parents or calls from youth pastors saying, you know, my, my, my student or my, my son or daughter, they're not really living the Christian life, you know, and, and basically they're saying, you know, would you give them a little kick in the butt, you know? And, and, and so often I'm like, you know, I know that might seem like it would be helpful, but I really suspect that they just don't understand the beauty of God's grace in a way that set them free. And that's what Paul wants to make sure. Before you start trying to live the Christian life, do you understand what it means to have your life hid with Christ in God? And that leads us to this next point. The Bible is always about connecting the dots. You could put put it this way. The Bible never just gives us bare commands. It never says, put to death whatever belongs to your earthly nature. It says, put to death therefore. And remember, like I say all the time, whenever you see a therefore, you need to ask, what is the therefore therefore? Well, the therefore is there because Paul is building on this bedrock truth. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Listen, right now, you're hid in Christ. But one day, when Christ returns, your perfect beauty will be seen before everyone. And because of that, Put to death whatever belongs to your earthly nature. Christ died to make you beautiful. Therefore, live that way. 
He's not saying live this way so that you will become beautiful. He's saying God made you beautiful. Live out of that settled security. Put to death, therefore. It's not a bare command. He goes on. Um, Do not lie to each other since, verse 9, you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self. Um, And then verse 11, here there is no gentle or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised. What he's saying is you are a new humanity, therefore live like it. Verse 12, therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion. Do you see? The Bible never just gives bare commands. Everything the Bible tells us to do is anchored in something about who God is or what he's done. And that means when you're struggling to live the Christian life, so often where the root of the problem is, is you're not convinced that what God has done is enough. It's true. Connecting the dots is absolutely vital for the Christian life. And I'll just tell you, in the postmodern world that we live in, dot connecting doesn't come intuitively or easily. You have to actually do it intentionally. That's why Paul says, set your heart, set your whole being on the things above. Christ, who is now finished his work. Connect those dots. Make it the work of your heart and your soul. Make it the key of your fellowship. Whether it's a formal four by four group or just informal friendship. Make focusing one another on the completed work of Jesus the work of your life. It also means, this idea that the Bible doesn't give just bare commands, it also means that motivation really matters. For Christianity, it matters why you do what you do. And if you think about it, this makes sense. You know, it's really true of most any relationship that really matters. If I buy flowers as a duty for my wife, she's less impressed than if I just do it for the heck of it, right? In fact, she may even be hurt and wonder whether I really love her at all, particularly if I'm like, here, you know, I know it's that day when I'm supposed to buy you flowers, yeah? I used to buy her flowers way more often, I'm sure is what she's thinking right now, right? And in some ways you might say, well, you just need to buy her flowers. Say, no, I need to be reanimated on what it is I love about her, right? So it is with God. Right? The Christian life is about connecting the dots and finding the motivation. Where do you find the motivation? Seeing the beauty of Christ, the love of Christ, the sacrifice of Christ. And that's why when Paul wants these Colossians to live lives that honor God, he reminds them over and over and over all through this passage about what God has done for them and what God thinks about them. As I I said in the opening prayer, one of my seminary professors, David Jones, who now is with the Lord, used to say this, the real problem in the Christian life is not so much knowing what to do, it's finding the courage to do it. And God understands that. That's why he spends so much time giving us all these motivations for living the Christian life. And I'll just tell you, too many of y'all have been scarred by Christian churches and teaching that spend so much time focusing on the why and never really talks about, or focusing on the what, without really talking about why. That's the heart of moralism. Doesn't matter why you do it, just do it. The Christian life is never about that.
The Bible always connects those things. And the reason is because the Bible is very consistent on this. Nothing can really change your heart for good or for long except grace. In the short term, guilt is a pretty powerful mediator, pretty powerful motivator, right? But nothing makes you more self-conscious than being unsure of someone's approval. You ever been in a relationship like that? You might try to do everything just right. You might try to always look your best. But if you're never really sure what the other person thinks about you, it makes you terribly insecure and self-conscious. And for some of you, that's the way you relate to God. You're just always so worried about whether you did it enough or did it well. And um, that's not the Christian life the way it's supposed to be. The Christian life starts with resting in the completed work of Jesus and then living out of that as dearly loved children. But, this is our last point tonight, sanctification is not just something that happens to you. It's active. Paul says here, put to death, verse 5. That's strong, vigorous language, right? Put to death. It's not about just getting out of the way so that God can just kind of flow through you like an empty vessel. No, Paul says you need to fight against sin. And that leads us to verse 9 and verse 10, which are so key. Now, Paul basically is summarizing a whole chapter of Romans in this two verses here. Romans chapter 6, Paul goes into kind of great detail on this. But I actually usually go here to Colossians 3, 9 and 10 when I want to try to explain sanctification. Okay, so most Christians, if you ask them, um, you know, what does it mean to grow as a Christian or what does it mean to be sanctified? They would put it this way. I know that justification happened the moment I became a Christian. And now sanctification is this thing that I kind of have to keep working at that bit by bit. I'm going to become more and more like Jesus. But here's what most Christians don't understand. There is something definitive and huge with regards to sanctification that happens at the moment of conversion. And this is really important to understand. The, the key to, I think, keeping this straight is to understand that from Adam's sin, we get two things. We get guilt because he represents us just as Christ will represent those who trust in him. He represents us. This is Romans chapter 5. And because of that, we're all seen as guilty in him, our federal representative. Though we also get screwed up. We also get screwed up. We are sinners. We're guilty, but we also are screwed up. Justification deals with our guilt completely. When we become Christians, we are no longer guilty. In fact, we're seen as having perfect righteousness because we're given the righteousness of Jesus. But what about our screwed upness? Most, most Christians, I think, if you ask them, if you press them, they think, well, we're kind of just like justified worms. Like nothing's really changed about us. It's just God thinks about us differently. And here I am to say that's actually not true. What Paul says here, Romans, or sorry, Colossians 3, 9 is, do not lie to each other. Why? 
since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self. That's something definitive. The old self has been put off. The new self has been put on. Paul uses even stronger language in Romans 6, but he basically says the same thing there. You have crucified. The old self has been crucified. But here's the thing. The new self is not perfect. The old self is crucified. What is the old self? The old self is Kevin Twitt, slave to sin. Kevin Twitt, slave to sin. The old self, dead. Crucified no longer exists, but Kevin Twitt, Christian, new self, is not yet perfect. You see what he says? You've put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Now, why does this matter? Well, it matters because a lot of Christians really need to understand that something huge happened with regard to the power and slavery of your sin. You are no longer a slave to sin. And while it doesn't feel like that a lot of the time, sometimes you have to believe that by faith because God has said you are no longer a slave to sin. And sometimes you need to say, Lord Jesus, help me to believe that. Help me to not be defeated even before I start to fight against sin. Help me to believe that you really can empower me to fight against sin and to make real progress in living for you, right? I'm not just a justified worm. But for others... For others, you need to understand what you're up against. Because others are like, well, you know, in Christ, all things are new. And I should just let him like flow through me. No, you have to fight. You have been set free from the dominion of sin, from the slavery of sin, so that you can fight against sin. Because you aren't yet perfect. The new self is not perfect. And this is so important because some Christians have been taught that basically the old, the old self is completely gone. Now you have this new self. And so all you really need to do is let Jesus live his life and rather than you living your life. But that's not what Paul says here. It's not about substitution. Justification is about substitution. Sanctification is about the dominion of sin being broken and then you fighting to put sin to death through the power of the Spirit. And how do you do that? Well, you've got to fight sin at its root. And there's a little key here that I want to show you. When he talks about the things in verse 5 that are part of the earthly nature, he says, evil desires and greed, which is idolatry. Now, that's really fascinating because a lot of people would, would just say, you shouldn't be greedy. Stop being greedy. But Paul actually gives us a really important um, insight here that greed is idolatry. And if you ask Paul, he'd say, so is immorality, impurity, lust, and evil desires. They're all idolatry. Why does that matter? Well, because so often we fight against sin like that whack-a-mole game. Have you ever played the whack-a-mole game? You know, where the little moles, and you try and jump on them, or you try and hit them with a with a mallet, and they just keep popping up, right? And that's how often we're fighting against our sin. Sometimes people be like, you know, I'm really kind of struggling with people pleasing, but I'm really working on it. And I'll be like, really? Well, how are you working on it? Uh, I don't know. I, I think about it and I feel bad about it all the time. Well, working on it means trying to get at the root. Why are you a people pleaser? 
Are you doing it because you really are living for comfort more than for the glory of God? Or are you more living for approval more than the approval of Christ? Like unless you understand what people pleasing is doing, how it's functioning in your life, you're never going to be able to get the cross of Christ into your heart in a way that begins to make your pride and your unbelief wither. That's what it's about. You've got to get to the heart issue. Why is it that approval of men seems more beautiful to you than the approval you already have of God? To fight against sin, you have to explore that. You have to dig into that. And you have to actually take the cross of Christ and say, Lord, help me to believe that with you, I have perfect approval. Whether or not this person thinks I'm great or this person thinks I'm great, Lord, it's not that I don't care, but Lord, you are the one who really matters. Your voice is the voice I need to hear. Help my idol of wanting other people to love me, help that to wither in the light of your perfect love, which doesn't need to be earned by something I can do. That's what it means to put to death sin. It means to fight against it by getting to the heart issue and bringing the cross of Christ into that fear and unbelief. Because the way we live is always connected to how we worship. It is. When Paul says, set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God, he's saying, lift up your hearts and worship Christ the beautiful one who has completed this work. Fix your hearts there. Worship him so that all these other things that vie for your heart's affection begin to wither in the light of his beauty and his grace. That's why you need each other. That's why you need to read the Bible. That's why you need the sacraments. That's why you need church. That's why you need worship. Because we're up against a real battle. A real battle. That's why we pray all the time in RUF, Lord, Lord, open our eyes to see Jesus is more beautiful and believable than all the other things that vie for our heart's affection. You know, Tim Keller regularly recommends this sermon by a guy named Thomas Chalmers. The sermon is called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. And it's really an important idea. It's basically this idea. You don't get over one love until a new love comes along. Think about it, you know, maybe a way you can relate to it is thinking about being on the rebound. You know, when somebody's on the rebound, either from a crush that didn't go anywhere or maybe a relationship that's ended, they're kind of looking for a new love to drive out the memory of that first love. And what Chalmers says is that's the way the gospel works. That you still think, that there are so many things that are more lovely and more valuable and more solid and secure than the love of Jesus. And the only way that those old loves are going to be driven out is if your eyes are open to see Jesus as more beautiful and believable. This is what Paul says to the Corinthians, that as we gaze upon Christ, we are being transformed from one degree of glory to another. What we view, what we worship, has real power to change us. The Christian life, the problem in the Christian life is worship, but here's the glory. The solution is worship. And Jesus is worthy of all worship. And whenever we don't believe that, 
we become prey to all these other false gods, greed, lust, idolatry. All of that flows out of pride and fear. But the cross fights against pride by saying, you deserve death and hell. Don't flatter yourself. And it also fights against fear by saying, don't despair. Because Jesus looked at the cross and said, I would rather die than live without you. That security helps you say no to all the promises of the idols and the false gods that vie for your heart's affection. And we're going to talk about this some more next week. We're going to talk about this putting to death and putting on with the more specifics here with regard to lust and lying and all these sorts of things. So uh, that should be fun. Uh, come back with that. I'll just say this. What's so tragic is for some, so many people, they, they, they come upon a passage where the Bible's talking about sexual immorality. They're like, oh boy, I've heard this again. Yes, it's true. The problem is so many people have heard this from people who talk down other people and lie and speak terrible. You know what I mean? So it's hard to take seriously the concerns about sexual morality. We're going to talk about both of those things and why they both really matter for Christian community, for nurturing a countercultural community that can model for the world there is a different way to live for those who understand the love of Christ. So that's what we're going to do next week.